Well, here at Cow Creek, we believe that God saves and sanctifies his people through his word. Jesus, you remember, described God's word as life-giving food for our souls. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. Peter described it as like mother's milk by which we grow up with respect to salvation. And we believe that God's word is now preserved for us in the Bible. The Bible is the complete collection of inspired writings which God has intended his church to have. Peter described the writings in the Bible as God-breathed, that is, God's very words. And he says that they are able to equip us as Christians for every good work. They are, in other words, a sufficient source of divine revelation for us to be able to know what to believe and how to live as his people, as Christians. Now, we know that what God's people need is, therefore, his word, not our words, not man's words. And so, at Cow Creek, we strive to simply teach and preach what the Scripture says. That's our goal. Sunday after Sunday, in other words, when you come The regular practice of the preacher in this pulpit is to read a passage of scripture, to explain what it means and how it applies to our lives as Christians. Now, the goal, therefore, is simply that the message of the text becomes the message of the sermon. Some people call this expository preaching. And since, as Paul put it, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. We don't shy away from any part of the Bible. We seek to follow Paul's example when he was telling the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, 27 about his ministry. He says, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And so we at Cow Creek, we preach through whole books from every part of the Bible And the practice of doing that really allows God to determine the subject matter, um, not us. And it forces us to address all kinds of issues uh, which we might not want to or even think to address. Now, over the last eight years, since becoming the main preaching pastor here at Cow Creek, I have preached through eight books of the Bible, Ruth, Luke, Genesis, Ephesians, Hosea, Hebrews, Job, 2 Timothy, and then I just finished the book of Joshua. And my fellow elder, Paul Kalkinen, he's preached through Jonah. And now, as you know, he and Ben Abrahamson are going to be working through 1 and 2 Samuel as they preach on occasion for me. Now, as for me, though, the book I intend to preach through next is The Gospel According to John. And this is going to be a longer sermon series, um, partly because the Gospels are the longest books in the New Testament. It took me 104 sermons over the course of three years to preach through Luke's Gospel. Now, it should not take as long to preach through John, but it's going to be longer than the typical sermon series here. 
And one of the other reasons, besides it being a long book, that it takes typically longer to preach through a gospel as opposed to other lengthy books of the Bible is because the content is so important. The four gospels, in other words, they recount the high point of human history using the testimony of the people who were there to see it happen. They tell us of the period in time when, to use John's language, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That is, the one through whom things were created in the beginning, the creator, entered into his own creation. That time when the eternal God became man and lived among us. This is Jesus of Nazareth. And as you know, he made an indelible mark in human history. Indeed, there's no one who has had a greater impact upon the history of the world than Jesus. And the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they explain why that is the case. So it is typically wise to go through these books slowly, giving careful attention to every bit of text. And that's what I intend to do with John's account of the Gospel. Now, with all that being said, this morning, I'm not going to be diving into the first part of the text, but I'm going to do what I always do at the beginning of a new sermon series. I'm going to simply be laying the groundwork for our study of John's gospel by introducing you to the book. I'm going to just begin by explaining, first of all, some basic background matters like who wrote it. When did they write it? Why did they write it? And then I'm going to provide sort of an overview of what's in the book and highlight some of its main themes, its main teaching. So, with all that said, let's begin by covering some of those basic background matters that I mentioned. Who wrote the book? When and why? Now, the author of the Gospel according to John never actually explicitly identifies himself in the book. But the title, The Gospel According to John, of course written in Greek originally, was attached to this book from its earliest days of circulation. And throughout its history, the church has understood that John to be the Apostle John. Now, many scholars have come, started disputing that in our day, but it's still the best view. Uh, one John scholar, D.A. Carson, put it this way. He said, the most straightforward reading of the evidence for authorship is still the traditional one. It's highly probable that John, the son of Zebedee, quote, the disciple whom Jesus loved, wrote the fourth gospel. Now, we can't know for certain when the book was written. Carson himself says almost any date between AD 55 and AD 95 is possible. But there are good reasons to think that it might have been written in the latter part of the first century between the destruction of Jerusalem, which occurred in AD 70, and John's death, which occurred somewhere in the mid-90s AD. Now, as to why it was written, 
A few things need to be said here. First, the title tells us something. It is the gospel according to John. Now that word gospel, euangelion in the Greek, of course it means an announcement of good news. And in this case, the good news being announced concerns Jesus, right? It is the gospel according to John of Jesus Christ. And you know that because when you open up the book, you find it's all about him. And while there's only one gospel of Jesus Christ, only one announcement of good news concerning Jesus Christ, this book is John's account of it. It is the gospel according to John. Now, as to what the good news about Jesus consists of, well, a survey of the book's contents tells us. So like the other three accounts of the gospel, the gospel according to John tells us the story of Jesus's entrance into the world, his life as a man, his death on the cross, and his resurrection. And it explains that through these historical events, Jesus accomplished salvation for fallen human beings from the power and the penalty of their sin. In other words, the gospel, according to John, is a book which tells the good news of what God has done through Jesus Christ to save sinners from his own judgment and to bring them into eternal life, that is, eternal fellowship with the true God. But along the way, John's gospel emphasizes repeatedly that this gift of salvation and eternal life is received by men and women who believe and trust in Jesus for salvation. In other words, the book announces the gospel of Jesus Christ so that, and here we get to the purpose, people might believe it, this message of good news, and be saved. In fact, toward the end of the book, if you would, turn to John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. And in these two verses, you'll actually see that John tells us explicitly why he wrote the book. Here at the end, he says, John 20, verses 30 through 31, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John's purpose in writing this book, by his own admission, is primarily evangelistic. He wrote so that people might believe in Jesus and be saved. But that could lead you saying, well, why should we as Christians then read it? I mean, we already believe in Jesus and we've already received life in his name. And that's where we have to add that John clearly intended the church to read this book as well as unbelievers because this account of the good news concerning Jesus Christ reveals to every reader 
the glory of Jesus Christ. In fact, the book is designed in such a way, as we shall see, that you're going to gain further insight about Jesus, his person, his work, every time you read it. So by reading the gospel according to John, unbelievers will be saved if they respond to it in faith, and believers will gain a deeper knowledge and a deeper appreciation of their Savior so that they might grow in their love for and trust in him. Now, these twin purposes then reflect my own desire in this sermon series that everyone who listens to this sermon series in the months to come, as we open up John's gospel, might, number one, those who are lost, might believe in Jesus and receive eternal life in his name. And number two, those who are believers might grow to know and love and trust him more. So, sort of establish those basic background matters about the book, who wrote it, when did they write it, why did they write it. Now let's turn to consider what's in the book. And the first matter that I want to address has to do with the very text of John itself. John contains one of the two largest textual variations in the entire Bible. And I want to take a moment to just address it here at the beginning of our series. And we'll address it again when we come to it in the series. But if you will turn to your, in your Bibles to John chapter 7, verse 53, you're going to see what I mean. If you are using not the old King James, but a newer translation, the English Standard Version, New International Version, New American Standard Version, any of these versions, you're going to see some kind of note just before chapter 7, verse 53. And it's going to say something like, the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. Now, they put some kind of marker like brackets or double brackets or a thick line around that section of the text to mark it off from the rest of the book. In other words, those who produced your English translations from the original Greek text are warning you that they do not believe that those 12 verses were part of the book of John as he originally wrote it but were added in to a later copy by mistake, perhaps, or even intentionally. Now, why do they think this? Well, first of all, it's based upon the manuscript evidence. In other words, let me explain. We don't have the original text that John wrote with his hand, do we? That's been lost somewhere over time. But what we do have is many hundreds of copies of either part or all of John's gospel. The oldest of which go back to within a hundred years of when John must have written the book. In fact, the oldest manuscript that we have of any New Testament book is a tiny little fragment of John's gospel written on front and back, which dates back to around AD 100. 
just a few decades from when John actually penned the book. But in all of these hundreds of copies that we have of John's gospel, there's not a single one of them that contains the story of the woman caught in adultery until the 900s AD. And when it finally does begin to appear in certain copies of John's gospel starting in the 900s, it is put in different places by different scribes as if they weren't sure where it was supposed to go. In many cases, the scribe actually made a notation next to the text saying, indicating that he did not believe this was part of the original. Now, in addition to this, when you think about it, while it is easy to see how some extra-biblical story about Jesus that was floating around the church, like this story, might have been added into a copy of John by a scribe, you know, somewhere in the medieval period, for instance. That's understandable. But it's very difficult to explain how it could be missing from all the copies that we have of the book prior to the ninth century AD. If it truly were part of the original, you would think it would be somewhere in the tradition, the textual tradition. Finally, scholars have noticed that when you look at the flow of the gospel, this story does kind of seem out of place. I mean, we're used to it being there, but if you were to take it out, the text actually flows quite nicely from 752 to 812. Now, for these reasons, and there are others as well, there's so much to read about it, as you can imagine, I would agree with the vast majority of New Testament scholars today that this portion of John's gospel, as it appears in your English Bible, 753 through 811, is not actually part of the original text of John's gospel. So while it isn't a bad story, is it? It may even be based on a true event. We don't know. I don't think that it is part of inspired scripture because it wasn't part of the text that John originally wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit. So I'm not going to preach on that text in this sermon series. Now, with that aside, that kind of weird and abstract, boring stuff, I want to compare now this fourth gospel, according to John, to the other three accounts of the gospel that we have in the Bible, in the New Testament. So John compared to the other three Gospels. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John are four different books, right? They're written by four different people at four different times in history. And so even though each of these four books declare the same Gospel message concerning Jesus Christ, yet they represent four distinct accounts of that message. Now, that fact explains both the similarities and the differences between the four Gospels. Now, they don't contradict each other, but they're not exactly the same. They should rather be understood as providing four distinct witnesses from the ancient world that each corroborate the testimony of the eyewitnesses to the life and teaching and death and resurrection of Jesus, the Messiah. You know, if you hear about something happen, someone comes along in your life and they say, hey, I saw this happen. You might be like, it's so fantastic. Ah, 
I don't know if I can believe it. But then what if someone else came along and said, you know what, I just saw this happen and here's what it is. And you're like, wow, that's another person that saw it. And then a third and a fourth. It corroborates the events and the credibility of the testimony about it. And that's what is happening here in the New Testament. That's a good thing, isn't it? Well, now, as you know, three of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're often called synoptic. In other words, that they sort of contain and share much of the same material in common. But then you get to the fourth gospel, the gospel of John, and you find it's quite different from the other three, isn't it? Now, it's true there are some features which John's gospel has in common with the other three gospels. For instance, all four gospels do talk about generally the same events, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Also, John does include a few stories which are also in the other three Gospels. So Jesus' baptism, the feeding of the 5,000, and his walking on the Sea of Galilee. And there are also a few sayings of Jesus recorded in John which are parallel to sayings of Jesus recorded in the other three Gospels. But in general, John leaves out most of the material that are included in the other three synoptic gospels and instead provides new material that isn't found anywhere else. Even when John talks about the few events which are recorded in the other gospels, he often provides a lot of new information about those events. In fact, it may be that John wrote this gospel later in the first century, being aware of the first three gospels and wanting to supplement what they said in his gospel. Not contradict, but add to the witness to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Of course, we can't be sure of that. We can't look into his mind, but it seems like a likely theory. Now, what makes John different from the other three Gospels, however, that it contains. It's also the way it's structured, the whole argument of the book. The Gospel of John is organized in a way that is quite different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so I want to take a moment to explain some of its features for you now that will help us as we navigate through it and as you read through it in your own devotions. So let's go back for a moment. And if you would... Consider what John said again in that purpose statement, John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. You might still have it open in your Bibles. Look there again. He's told us why he wrote the book, and he said this, or it says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, here John says that he had written about certain signs. You see that word? Which Jesus had performed. Now, in general, a sign signifies, right? Saying, great, that's helpful, Jeremy. What I mean is that a sign points to something beyond itself, right? In this case, the signs which John is talking about 
were the miracles that Jesus did. They were signs that Jesus did. And what these miracles signified was his identity and what he'd come to do. So they pointed to the fact that he is, as John put it here, the Christ, the Son of God. John wrote about these miracles of Jesus so that when people read about them in his gospel, they would understand what they revealed about Jesus' identity and they would come to believe in him and thereby receive the gift of eternal life. Now, what you see then, when you look at the Gospel of John, if you flip through its pages or if you reflect upon your own reading of it, what you see when you look at the Gospel of John is that it is structured around a series of seven signs or miracles of Jesus. John tells us that the first of these signs was when Jesus turned water into wine at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. That's chapter 2. He actually says this was the first of Jesus' signs. And then he heals an official son in chapter 4, and John says this was now the second sign that Jesus did. And as for the other signs, well, Jesus healed a lame man at the pool of Bethesda in chapter 5. He fed 5,000 people in chapter 6. He healed a man born blind in chapter 9. He raised Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11. And then you ask, what's the seventh sign? His own resurrection in chapter 20 seems to function as the seventh sign. Because the chapter ends by saying Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. Now, in fact, you could describe the book this way. Chapter 1, it's like a prologue to the book. It takes us up to the point of his public ministry. Then it tells us, or then chapters 2 through 12 describe six of the signs that Jesus performed. This is often actually called by scholars today the book of signs, this part of the book. This is followed by an extended body of teaching that's recorded in chapters 13 through 17, in which Jesus delivered to his disciples teaching on the night before his crucifixion. It's often called the upper room discourse because much of it took place in the upper room where Jesus celebrated his Passover, his final Passover with his disciples. And then next, chapters 18 through 20, provide you with really a a passion narrative, right? It's similar to that in the other three Gospels. It has an account of Jesus' arrest, his trials, his crucifixion, his burial, or his death, his burial, his empty tomb, and his post-resurrection appearances. The resurrection itself seems to be the seventh and final sign that Jesus did. Lastly, chapter 21 Well, this seems to function as a sort of epilogue. You had a prologue, now you have an epilogue. And it tells the story of how Jesus restored Peter and gave a final pronouncement about the author, about John, who wrote the book. So, prologue, the six signs, upper room discourse, passion story, and epilogue. That's the book. Now, another notable feature of John's gospel is that there are a number of 
lengthy what you call discourses throughout the book. A discourse is a conversation between two parties, between Jesus and various groups of people. And these discourses further unpack who he is and what he's come to do. That's what the signs do. It's also what the discourses do. So there's a discourse between Jesus and Nicodemus. You know that one, right? You must be born again, chapter 3. There's a discourse between Jesus and a Samaritan woman in chapter 4. Now, often these discourses will actually follow one of the signs, and they refer back to the sign and unpack further the significance of the sign. So, for instance, in chapter 5, he heals that lame man by the pool of Bethesda or Bethsaida, And then that's followed by this discourse between Jesus and the Jews where he explains why when he healed that man on the Sabbath, he wasn't breaking the Sabbath because he is the son of God. Or you think of Jesus' miracle of feeding the 5,000 in John chapter 6. It's followed by a lengthy discourse between Jesus and the crowds at the center of which is this theme that Jesus is the true bread of God come out of heaven to give life to men. After he just multiplied the loaves and given physical bread, he talks about how he's the true bread that gives eternal life. So you see the discourse unpacked the meaning of the sign. Finally, we should point out, of course, that woven into all these discourses in the book of John are seven glorious I am statements, right? They, they're about who Jesus is. He tells us straightforwardly. So in chapter 6, 35, he says, I am the bread of life. Chapter 8, verse 12, he said, I am the light of the world. Chapter 10, verse 7, he said, I am the door of the sheep. In verse 10 of the same chapter, I am the good shepherd. Chapter 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Chapter 15, verse 1, finally, I am the vine. Seven signs, seven I am statements. Each of these seven I am statements serve as a striking summary compact summary of different aspects of Jesus' identity as the Messiah. So, let's summarize. What's in the book? Well, the book contains John's account of the gospel, which reveals the person and work of Jesus Christ by writing about seven signs that Jesus performed, beginning with changing water into wine at Cana and climaxing in his own resurrection, And then explaining these signs with various discourses between him and various parties. And all of it included seven summary I am statements, which summarize who he is. Now, there are lots of other things in the book as well, as we'll see. But I think that these features provide you at least a basic sense of the structure of this incredible gospel. Now, finally, we just have to consider what is this gospel of John teaching, right? What is its main themes? 
We have to return here again to that main point that John was trying to communicate in his account of the gospel. You remember he summarizes it in John 20, 31 through 32. We've looked at it a couple times. He says that his goal is to reveal you know, the identity of Jesus Christ by, by way of these signs so that people reading the book will believe in Jesus, either for the first time and be saved or that they will gain a deeper knowledge and a deeper faith in Jesus Christ. Now, many of the themes of the book are then related to that primary purpose. So, for instance, much of the book is designed to teach you various aspects of Jesus' identity. It's as if John is holding up this beautiful diamond, the person and work of Jesus, and he's just turning it, turning it, turning it to show you different glorious aspects of who Jesus is and what he'd come to do. So, for instance, we see that from the beginning of the book, John clearly tells us that Jesus is God. Perhaps clearer than any of the other Gospels. A God, the God who existed before his birth as a man. For instance, in John chapter 1, verse 1, John describes Jesus saying, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And then it says that through him, all things were made. So it describes Jesus as the one who was with God in the beginning, who was himself God, who is the one through whom all creation came to being. And then in verse 14, he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In chapter five, Jesus told the Jews, my father is working until now and I am working. In the next verse, it says, the Jews were seeking, therefore, all the more to kill him. And it says that it was in part because he was, quote, making himself equal with God. He's saying, whatever my father's doing, I'm doing the same thing. Who can claim that but God alone? In chapter 8, verses 56 through 59, Jesus said to the Jews, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was... I am not only claiming pre-existence before Abraham was, but more than that, ascribing to himself that divine name so famously articulated in Exodus 3.14 to Moses, I am who I am. Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. The Jews understood immediately what he was doing. It says they picked up stones to throw at him for blasphemy. Later on, they did this again when he said in John chapter 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. And it explains, the, the Jews explain why they're going to stone him. They say, we're going to stone you, not for some work you did, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself God. And they were right, because he was because the Apostle Thomas, he was correct. When at the end of this gospel, he said to the risen Jesus in John 20, 28, my Lord and my God. 
See, John's account of the gospel wants to emphasize that Thomas was exactly right in saying that. Along these same lines, John makes a special point to identify Jesus as the unique divine Son of God. That famous passage, John 3.16, well, in John 3.16 through 18, John famously describes Jesus using the Greek word monogenes, or only begotten Son of God, emphasizing his unique filial relationship with God the Father. And in John chapter 5, Jesus explained what that meant. As he put it in verse 19, he says, Whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Which, as he went on to say, included having life in himself and giving it to whoever he chose, raising them from the dead at the end of the age, judging them and sentencing them to either eternal life or eternal destruction. These are truly astounding privileges for Jesus to claim for himself but not if he is the only begotten Son of God who is equal with God the Father. In addition to this, John emphasizes throughout the book that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the long-awaited one whose coming is foretold in the Old Testament. Simon begins it by telling his brother Andrew, Andrew, quote, we have found the Messiah, chapter 1, verse 41. Or you remember the Samaritan woman who says to Jesus at the well, well, I know Messiah is coming, and when he comes, he'll clear these things up. And Jesus says to her in John four twenty-five, I who speak to you am he. Jesus said to Martha in John or Martha said to Jesus in John eleven twenty seven, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Jesus' identity as the Christ is an explicit theme throughout John's gospel. Now, together, of course, those two aspects of Jesus' identity are what John says he wants his readers to believe about him in John 20, 30, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So it's no surprise that when you read through the book, he's emphasizing those two things about Jesus. But there are also other things about Jesus which are added to this like glorious layer, one upon the other throughout the book. So for instance, John not only spoke repeatedly of Jesus as the one to whom the old Testament scriptures pointed to. You remember he told the Jews, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you will have find eternal life. But they point to me and you won't come to me. So John presents Jesus as the one to whom the Old Testament scriptures are pointing to, but also he presents Jesus as the one in whom various Old Testament themes found their fulfillment. So for instance, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. He alludes to Genesis 1, 1 through 3. And he says that Jesus was there in Genesis 1, 1 through 3. And that he's the one through whom all things were created in the beginning. Old Testament theme, 
fulfilled in Jesus. And in John 2.19, Jesus provocatively is in the temple. And he says of his body, he says, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. He's identifying himself as the great meeting place between God and men. And of course, he would be after the temple's gone. Or in John chapter 3, he says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the devil, or in the, in the, in the wilderness. This is back in the book of Numbers. The people had rebelled against God. God struck them with judgment. He told Moses to lift up a bronze serpent and they had to look to the serpent. And if they looked to the serpent, they would be saved from God's judgment. And Jesus says, so also the son of man must be lifted up. And he explains how all who look to him in faith will receive eternal life. Old Testament theme fulfilled in Jesus. John chapter six, he describes himself as the true manna. God had given physical bread to Israel out of heaven, but Jesus says that God now has given the true bread that gives eternal life to the world to whoever who will believe in him. Another very vivid theme. Throughout the Old Testament prophets, it was a repeated way of referring to Israel. God would say that they were his flock, and he would describe them as being abused by their shepherds by their leaders. And he said, one day I will shepherd the flock. And he says, I will set my servant David over the flock. And then in a dusty road, long time later, we hear this man saying, I am the good shepherd. I have come to lay down my life for the sheep. Or another prominent Old Testament theme is God would often refer to Israel as his vine or his vineyard. And he says, I tend you, I give you water, I prune you, I take care of you, and what do you give me? Fruitless. A vine that would be destroyed. In John chapter 15, you hear Jesus saying, I am the vine, and every branch in me will bear good fruit. Old Testament themes coming to fulfillment in Jesus. In fact, the greatest of all is at the end when his, he dies on the cross, but the soldiers found, find his body already dead and they don't break his legs. And it says that this was to fulfill what was said of the Passover lamb, that not a bone of it should be broken. And it presents Jesus as the great Passover lamb slaughtered for our salvation from the judgment of God. Old Testament themes pointing to and fulfilling in Jesus. Another theme is that John emphasizes the theme of witness. You know, he's trying to show us who Jesus is. And in the book, you often see Jesus or John himself, the author, appealing to various witnesses, testifying to the truth of who Jesus is. There are many occasions in John's gospel when the reader is told of various witnesses. So John the Baptist is described as a witness on various occasions. In John chapter 5, Jesus, speaking to the Jews, points to his miracles, his father, the scriptures, and Moses as corroborating witnesses, establishing who he is. In John 15, 26, he also adds the Holy Spirit and his disciples and says, they will bear witness about me. The book ends with this line, 
from the author himself. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. It's a way of saying, John saying, I'm the one writing this, and I can tell you it's true. Finally, the book frequently addresses the theme of how people respond to the revelation of Jesus' identity in this gospel. So on the one hand, there is this pervasive emphasis upon how people so frequently misunderstood what Jesus was saying and who he was. So you remember how he famously said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And everyone thought he's talking about the real, the, the physical temple in Jerusalem. In fact, that's what he was charged with at his final Jewish trial. Or Nicodemus, when Jesus said, you must be born again, he said, how can you go back into your mother's womb and be born again? Or in John chapter 4, where Jesus told the woman at the well that he could offer water that would never, you'd never thirst again. And she says, Jesus, where do I find this water? Or in John chapter 6, where he says that you must eat my flesh and drink his blood. And they're thinking, what is this guy? He's crazy. John chapter 7, he says that he was going somewhere where they could not follow. And they're, they're thinking, where is he going? Is he going to go into the dispersion and be among the Gentiles? Over and over, John describes people not understanding and how this led to a division in their response to him. Some saw the miracles and believed in him, but others did not and thought he was false and a troublemaker. And these themes speak, of course, to the human condition of corruption and frailty and blindness. And in the face of this division, Jesus affirms, the reason is that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, John 6, 44. But on the other hand, John's gospel makes very clear how people should respond to the revelation of his identity and of his teaching. They should believe in him. Let me just give you a sampling. John 1, 11 through 12. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. John 3.18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. John 5.24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. John 6.40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And of course, John eleven twenty five through 26, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? That's just a small sampling, isn't it? Of these kinds of texts showing how John's gospel points to faith in Jesus as the proper response to his message. And finally, as he saw from even those texts that I read, John's favorite way of describing salvation, which God gives to people who believe, is that phrase, eternal life. But we shouldn't just think of unending life. Rather, he, Jesus himself, describes the nature of this eternal life that we receive from God through faith. He says in John 17, 5, that it, this is eternal life, to know the only true God, and Jesus' personal fellowship with God and his Son, which never ends. 
In other words, John affirms again and again that those who respond to his book by believing in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, will be saved from death, saved from perishing as a penalty for their sin and enter into eternal life, eternal knowledge of God and his Son, eternal fellowship with the triune God. No wonder this book is called a gospel. It is good news, isn't it? Now, let me just close in this way. This morning, I really want to challenge us. Hopefully, you've seen from this introduction what the Gospel of John is all about. It's designed to reveal to you the glory of Jesus, to tell you who he is, the promised Messiah, the unique Son of God, God become flesh, and to tell you what he's come to do to offer himself up unto death so that sinners might be saved from death and have eternal life with him. So I want to challenge you. Let's take this sermon series very seriously. If you're here in this room today and you're, you don't, you're not sure about Jesus, earnestly pray that God would reveal the truth about him to you in this book as we study it together. If you are a Christian, you do believe in Jesus. Earnestly pray that God would help you to know him better, that you might trust him more, be filled with a greater awe of him and love for him as a result of seeing his glory in this book. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this gospel according to John, a witness to the truth about who your son is, Jesus Christ, this man who more than any other has shaped the whole course of human history. Oh God, we are grateful that these things have been written down for our instruction. But Lord, we know that our hearts are prone to dullness and we are so prone to blindness that there could be light right in front of us and we could be distracted or, or not see it for what it is. We pray you would open our eyes to see the glory of Christ in this book. That we would come out the other side of this study having grown in faith and wonder and awe and love and reverence for our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen.